What makes a con man? What is it that makes them so easy to believe? How do they manage to seem so trustworthy that we just blindly pick up whatever it is they're putting down? Surely it's not a solo effort. A con man is only as good as the people who prop him up, right? So when the next George Santos is exposed for the straw man that he is, ask yourself who benefited from his song and dance. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a firm believer in faking it till you make it, though my approach has been more of a I'll get this eventually rather than an all out I got this. So maybe it's a little more stumble till you make it. Anyway, confidence can carry a mediocre person through a hell of a lot. One thing I can say confidently is that the content over on our Patreon is seriously top-notch. I should know. I write it. See? I'm being confident. For just five bucks a month, you get three bonus episodes plus extra exclusive content. And for just seven bucks, you get all that plus all the regular episodes ad-free. We've got incredible women explorers you've never heard of, ancient Nordic artifacts popping up in the most unlikely places, my little ponies running rampant in unsuspecting mines. So take the leap, won't you? Join us over in the deep end. The water is fine. I'm confident you'll love it. You know that movie Forrest Gump? You've probably heard of it. Little Tom Hanks picture from the 1990s. It's about a man of lower than average intelligence who just kind of stumbles his way through life into one success after another. It is, in truth, a portrait of white male privilege. The man in our story today is also the very picture of white male privilege who, unlike Forrest Gump, possesses that special confidence that only someone truly average can possess. Richard Walter was born in 1943 in Washington State, and as an adult, he would say he had been fated from early on to a, quote, grim life studying criminals, end quote, according to an article by David Gauby Herbert for The Intelligencer from April 2023. Herbert goes on to describe Walter's childhood as relatively average. He was, according to former schoolmates, quote, an outgoing popular kid who liked the piano and led the prayer band at a Seventh-day Adventist boarding school, end quote. But frankly, I'm not sure what point Herbert is trying to get at. One can feel as though they were fated for a grim life studying criminals and also have had an ideal childhood. Plus, just because some kids he'd gone to school with 70 years earlier thought he was outgoing doesn't mean shit about his home life. Unless I'm missing something, which is certainly possible. According to Herbert, quote, In September 1963, at the age of 20, he married a former classmate and briefly took a job at a funeral home. He didn't want to work with any old stinky bodies, his brother recalled in an interview. End quote. I have no idea what that means. Was the funeral home Walter got a job at only for young, fresh-smelling bodies? Anyway, that's not the point, Daisy. Walter's wife filed for divorce after only 10 months, citing mental cruelty. The next time Walter shows up in public records, according to Herbert, was 11 years later when he graduated from Michigan State University with both a BA and a master's in psychology. When asked at a recent deposition what he was doing for those 11 years between 1964 and 75, apparently Walter replied, 
I don't remember. This guy didn't just forget a decade of his life. Even if he'd gone into a fugue state, surely he'd have been able to answer... Your Honor, I was in a fugue state at the time in question and therefore don't remember. I think it's safe to assume that Richard Walter's I don't remember is equal to a bunch of shit I'd rather not go on record admitting to, Your Honor. And if that is the case, then seriously, what the fuck was this dude doing from the mid-60s to the mid-70s? After blooping off the face of the earth for 11 years and then getting his master's in psych, Walter got a job as a lab assistant in the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office washing test tubes for three bucks an hour, which is still only about $18 in today money. So, still not a living wage. By 1978, Walter was considering a doctoral program, but instead he was offered a job as a prison psychologist at Marquette Branch Prison in Michigan. Now, one doesn't need a doctorate to see patients as a psychologist, though one usually does need a license, and whether or not he had one of those is unclear. And these days, if someone is planning on working with the prison population, I would imagine there are some necessary certifications But Walter, it seems, got the job without a license or any specialized training. So it probably won't come as much surprise to learn that Walter didn't have great bedside manner with his patients in the prison. According to former colleagues and inmates, he was petty and mean and didn't seem qualified to either diagnose or treat mental health issues. For some reason, he thought it was okay to hold sessions through a closed steel door, which... Listen, I'm no prison psychologist, but I'm willing to say that talking to people with a closed steel door between you isn't going to build much of a sense of trust or safety, two things that are pretty important in the therapist-patient relationship. Prison officials eventually relegated Walter to conducting intake interviews with inmates, basically to assess if they could live with the general prison population. Despite his piss-poor track record as a prison psychologist, Walter parlayed this relatively menial job into quite the side hustle, speaking at conferences hosted by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Forensic science was gaining popularity in the criminal justice system at the time, despite some of the so-called science, like blood spatter and hair microscopy, eventually being debunked as junk. Within a couple years, Walter became a full member of the AAFS, which opened doors to testifying at trial as a, quote, criminal profiler, end quote. Walter, having zero experience in forensic science, unless he was some kind of forensic scientist during that 11-year black hole in his life, somehow positioned himself as an expert in the field, and in 1982, he got his big break when a prosecutor from Buffalo, New York, called on him to testify in the case of 17-year-old Robbie Drake, who had shot two teens who were parked at a junkyard that doubled as a lover's lane. After he shot them, he stabbed the young man in the back and was caught by an officer on patrol while he was trying to put the young woman's dead body into the trunk of the car she'd been sitting in when he shot her. Drake's defense was that he didn't know anyone was in the car and that he'd shot it for target practice. It was only after he'd fired a few shots, he claimed, that he realized there were people in the car, at which point he panicked. He was trying to get a conviction of manslaughter, which carries a lesser sentence than murder. 
Peter Broderick, the prosecutor, would need a motive in order to justify a murder charge, though, and decided the motive was sexual based on faint marks on the young woman's body that an odontologist testified were post-mortem teeth marks. Broderick needed another expert to bolster his case, so he called on Richard Walter to testify that Drake had committed the murders in order to satisfy his lust and an obscure sadistic sexual pleasure in penetrating flesh that he called peakerism. Drake's attorney was like, say what? And tried to find any other expert who wasn't also like, say what? None of them had ever heard of peakerism. He asked for more time to find a psychologist to rebut Walter's claims of peakerism, but the judge denied him because Lord knows the last thing you should do when weighing someone's fate is take more time to consider all the angles. Drake was convicted of second-degree murder and received two consecutive terms of 20 to life, while Walter received a fee for his testimony of $300. Soon, Walter began accepting more invitations to be an expert witness, usually for the prosecution. And by 1987, he was claiming to be one of only 10 criminal profilers that the FBI trusted and regularly used. Spoiler alert, no one at the time, it seems, bothered to fact check this claim. But we'll get to that. Walter was charismatic, as many fakers seem to be. Apparently, the more entertainingly you say things, the more likely people are to believe you. Pretty much every con artist in the history of time has been nothing if not super charismatic and entertaining. That's part of the whole grift. So when things fall apart, everyone goes, but he was so charming. Ever heard of The Music Man? Fun fact, I have never seen or listened to The Music Man. It seems Walter also managed to hone in on a topic that was particularly interesting to, well, pretty much everyone. When giving lectures as an expert, he gave speeches with titles like Lust, Arson, and Rape, a Factorial Approach, and Anger Biting, a Hidden Impulse. Although, ask any mother of a toddler and they'll tell you anger biting is no big secret. Perhaps it was Walter's charisma and charm that drew the attention of Frank Bender, an artist from Philadelphia who'd recently started a side hustle as a forensic sculptor. You might remember Bender from the John List episode, that fucking guy. Bender was the sculptor who'd managed to create a bust of List from a single old photograph more than 18 years after List had murdered his entire family and disappeared. It was through Bender that Walter would meet Bill Fleischer, who was an FBI special agent, polygraph expert, and customs investigator. However, I should point out that the 2011 Guardian article by Ed Pilkington that describes Fleischer in this way also describes Walter as follows, quote, Walter is one of the world's most respected forensic psychologists specializing in delving into the dark mind of the serial killer. Rake thin and spiky, he has worked across America, but because of his demeanor, people call him the Englishman, end quote. So maybe we'll have to take this info with a grain of salt. No offense to Pilkington, he was only working with the information he had. But also, what exactly is the demeanor of an Englishman? Hugh Grant? Boris Johnson? Gordon Ramsay? Like, what does that even mean? 
Walter was an American. He was born in Washington State, for crying out loud. How could he have the demeanor of an Englishman? And furthermore, how is simply seeming English a qualification for anything other than being cast in the latest Willy Wonka film? Anyway. Walter, Bender, and Fleischer got together for lunch one afternoon in 1990 and talked about old cold cases. You know, with Walter being a foremost expert and everything. And they had so much fun, they decided to make an official thing of it and start a little club. Fleischer came up with the name the VDOC Society, named after Eugene-Francois VDOC, who Pilkington called, quote, the father of modern detective work, end quote. VDOC had been something of a career criminal in the early 1800s, spending time in jail for fighting, petty crime, and forgery. He also had a habit of escaping jail by disguising himself. However, at one point, he'd learned that a prison guard had been falsely accused of helping VDOC escape, and VDOC gallantly came forward and admitted to escaping in order to protect the prison guard. He was sent to the gallows, which, if you've ever seen Les Mis, you know is basically hell especially when they start singing. Kidding, kidding, some of my best friends are singers. Anyway, eight days after going to the gallows, VDOC was like, I'm out, and bribed a guard into giving him a sailor's suit, which he then put on and just walked out of the prison. Actually, this guy's life was pretty amazing. Apparently, he was the inspiration for a whole slew of literary characters, including both Valjean and Javert, the criminal and the lawman, respectively, from the aforementioned Les Mis. He was caught again and sent to an even worse prison, probably without even any singing, where he was regularly beaten. He befriended another inmate who somehow got his hands on the keys to VDOC's shackles, though not, it seems, his own, and VDOC escaped out the window. He spent some time on the lam until he was arrested again, and again fucking escaped. He was only 34 at this point and probably had run out of ways to escape, so instead he became an informant for a reduced sentence. They then basically let him escape so he could work undercover. And, like a real Tammy turnabout, he spent the rest of his career putting other people in prison. VDOC was an apt namesake for a crime solvers club started by at least one con man who worked his way into crime fighting through the back door. According to the VDOC Society's website, quote, Our members act as confidential consultants to police agencies with investigative jurisdiction. We will become involved only when such an agency requests our assistance. The investigation remains under the full control of the investigating agency. Neither the society nor its members seek public recognition or compensation for their work, end quote. Basically, it's an old boys club with a few women that the New York Times once referred to as the heirs of Holmes, as in Sherlock, with no more than 82 members at a time for every year of VDOC's life. Members come from all walks of life, but mostly various arms of law enforcement. They meet once a month at a luncheon in which they are briefed on a cold case. As Pilkington described it, quote, First would come the fine cuisine, then the hard work. Each lunch would be addressed by an interested party, relatives, police officers, or prosecutors, who would set out the basic details of an unsolved case that was at least two years old. They would then open the floor to questions and comments from the VDOC Society members, end quote. 
The members act as a sort of go-between with law enforcement and families to try to close these long open cases. In one of their first cases, Walter and the VDOC Society helped clear a man named Derek Carlock of murder charges. The victim's family was sure that Carlock was innocent and called on the VDOC Society for help. There actually isn't a ton of information about what they presented in order to get Carlock's initial charges dismissed, but after a VDOC fingerprint expert and Walter testified, the case was dismissed in 45 minutes. Whatever it was, that must have been some powerful testimony. With one success logged in their book, the VDOC Society went on to start kicking ass and taking names all over the country. In 1992, the VDOC Society started poking into a cold case from 1984. Drexel College student Deborah Wilson was found strangled to death in a stairwell on campus. While looking over the crime scene photos, Walter noticed that the woman's shoes were missing and suggested the person responsible for her murder would be someone with a foot fetish. When police searched the home of a local security guard who'd been on duty the night Wilson had been murdered, they found a collection of worn women's sneakers and foot fetish porn. The prosecutor, Roger King, who, according to the Intelligencer article, boasted that he'd put more men on death row than anyone else in the history of his office, cool flex, bro, won the case and the security guard was sentenced to life in prison. Walter cited this case as a personal triumph for decades. In 1997, Walter picked up the cold case of Scott Dunn, who'd gone missing in Texas in 1991. Walter profiled the man's girlfriend at the time he went missing, Leisha Hamilton, and decided she was, in the words of Pilkington, quote, a murderous psychopath, end quote. After some insistent cajoling on Walter's part, police went back to Dunn's apartment and ran forensic tests that it seemed to me they should have run six years earlier and found old blood stains on the walls. A forensic analyst concluded Dunn had been bludgeoned at least four times inside the apartment. Based on that and Walter's profile, Hamilton was arrested and convicted of murdering Dunn. Nearly 20 years later, a work crew found Dunn's remains in a sewer system near his apartment. Fractures on his skull confirmed the assertion that he'd been beaten to death. As the VDOC Society raked in the successes, Bender, Fleischer, and Walter were basking in a lot of media attention. Since the FBI is not known to be particularly flashy or showy, the VDOC Society and its three founders were more than happy to step into the spotlight. Articles with colorful descriptions of the men built a sort of cult of personality around them. A piece in Esquire from 2010 by Michael Capuzzo titled The Secret World of Earth's Best Detectives quoted America's Most Wanted's host John Walsh calling Bender brilliant. Capuzzo described the men this way, quote, Forensic psychologist Richard Walter, a slender, chain-smoking, blasphemous-tongued loner who has logged thousands of interviews over 20 years with convicted criminals at the largest walled penitentiary in the world and subsequently helped invent modern criminal profiling, and Frank Bender, a goateed bohemian psychic sculptor, Esquire's Man of the Month in April 2004, who is the most celebrated forensic artist in the world, who successfully and uncannily predicts how fugitive serial killers will look decades after their last sightings. 
Bender is also happily sex-addicted, having slept with some 300 women. His wife had no objections. He is dying of mesothelioma that has eaten two of his ribs, and doctors can't understand why he isn't dead yet, end quote. Must have been all that sex. A-plus journalism there, Esquire. The article's author, Michael Capuzzo, would go on to publish a book about VDOC the following year titled Murder Room. David Galvey Herbert's piece for The Intelligencer includes this, quote, Richard Walter was billed as one of America's preeminent criminal profilers, an investigative wizard who could examine a few clues and conjure a portrait of a murderer. Walter was tall and gaunt with a hard-to-place, vaguely English accent. He favored cools and chardonnay, and he was never photographed in anything but a dark suit, a tiny smile often curling at the corner of his mouth. Walter knew how to give delicious cinematic quotes, and he cultivated his eccentricities for journalists and producers. He boasted of subsisting on cigarettes and cheeseburgers. He said that when the time was right, he would, quote, lie down to quiet, pleasant dreams, end quote, using sodium pentothal. He once yelled at a suspect, I'll chew your dick down so far you won't have enough left to fuck roadkill. Stranger, I would love to have something quippy to say here, but what can one say about this? Like, why are men? You know what I mean? Quote, when he arrived in small towns around America, his presence was front page news. In at least seven separate cold cases, Walter spoke to local reporters and delivered his catchphrase, a warning to the killer that his arrest was imminent. Don't buy any green bananas. End quote. Hollywood came calling with producers and studios whining and dining, Fleischer, Bender, and Walter. Danny DeVito's production company forked over more than a million dollars for the right to make a film about the men and the VDOC society. Meanwhile, they were still taking on cold cases and dispensing their forensic wizardry all over the place. In 2010, VDOC took a look at the 10-year-old cold case of 15-year-old Leah Freeman, whose body was found six weeks after she'd gone missing in Coquille, Oregon. The night Freeman had gone missing, her father found one of her shoes on the side of the road. For some reason, though, it took him a few days to turn the shoe over to police. Now look, I'm no father of a missing teen, but it seems to me if I found my child's shoe on the side of a road and she failed to come home when she was supposed to, I would march that shoe down to police 10 minutes after her missed curfew. Right? Police suspected Leah's boyfriend, Nick McGuffin, but without any evidence, the case remained cold. According to the Intelligencer piece, someone at the news magazine show 2020 caught wind that Walter and VDoc were sniffing around the case and decided to make an episode about the whole thing. As Herbert wrote in the Intelligencer piece, quote, The killer, Walter told the camera, was... <laughs> that muscle-flexing, Teutonic kind of braggart who thinks he's John Wayne, who wants to be a bigger man than what he is. He encouraged police to focus on MacGuffin. There was no new physical evidence, but Walter rearranged puzzle pieces that didn't quite fit and crafted his own theory. MacGuffin was a jealous boyfriend who hit Leah in the face and dumped her body in the woods, end quote. 
Once McGuffin was arrested and awaiting trial, according to Herbert, he watched the 2020 piece on ABC while awaiting trial and, quote, there on TV was Walter, a man he had never met, all but accusing him of murder. It's sweet revenge, and I take great personal satisfaction in hearing handcuffs click. Walter's antics continued on as author Michael Capuzzo's 2011 book, Murder Room, helped fan the flames of Walter's public image. The book makes many, many claims about Walter's work, including that the folks at Scotland Yard called him a living Sherlock Holmes. Capuzzo, it seems, took Walter at his word and helped promote this manufactured persona. For example, Walter bragged that during his time as a prison psychologist, he wielded an immense amount of power over the inmates. It's pretty wild, though, because he basically paints himself as a monster, scalding or freezing inmates while they showered, or turning their food into overcooked, mashed-together loaves of inedible brick. I can't fathom why anyone would want to come across that way. A prison spokesperson denied Walter's claims and was like, that's not how things work in prison. Walter also claimed to have been an adjunct professor at Michigan State, to which Michigan State was like, um, no, he wasn't. Detectives whose cases Walter claimed to have helped solve were like, I've literally never heard of Richard Walter. Walter also bragged about cases that no one could find any record of at all. It's possible he changed names, but that wasn't generally how he did things. Like, a man who runs around taking credit for well-known cases isn't going to suddenly decide one case deserves anonymity. Fleischer and Bender weren't thrilled with Capuzzo's book and accused him of taking too much creative liberty, but Walter joined Capuzzo on his book tour, apparently reveling in the media spotlight. Capuzzo has never addressed the claims of falsehoods and inaccuracies in his book and never wrote another book, possibly because he's too busy posting anti-vaccine conspiracy theories on Reddit. True story. And then, in April of 2023, David Galvey Herbert published his takedown of Walter in The Intelligencer. The piece is called The Case of the Fake Sherlock. Richard Walter was hailed as a genius criminal profiler, How did he get away with his fraud for so long? It's a very thorough and detailed chronicle of Walter's fraud. Listen, I happen to think that job applications today have gone a little too far. It seems these days one needs a master's for a basic data entry job. I do, however, think it's important for a potential employer to do a little bit of due diligence on their applicants to make sure they are who they say they are, at least... And from what I can tell, no one bothered to do even the most basic of fact-checking on anything Richard Walter claimed about himself. So he lied about his credentials in order to be called upon and paid as an expert witness in literal life-or-death trials, and then used those trial appearances to continue padding his resume and furthering his career. At least three of the convictions in trials in which he participated have been overturned. There was Robbie Drake, who'd been convicted and sentenced to two back-to-back 20-to-life sentences for the murders of the young people in the car. Drake had spent his time in prison carefully piecing together evidence that Richard Walter was a fraud. 
According to the Intelligencer piece, at Drake's trial, Walter, quote, falsely claimed that at the L.A. County Medical Examiner's Office, he had reviewed more than 5,000 murder cases. Walter also said he was an adjunct lecturer at Northern Michigan University. He had spoken there informally, possibly just once, wrote criminology papers he had never published, and served as an expert witness at hundreds of trials. He testified in two known cases about a simple chain of evidence question and in a civil suit against a car company, end quote. Drake's wife put together a 13-page document of all of Walter's false claims and lies and sent it to the American Academy of Forensic Science. Apparently, quote, officials at the organization acknowledged in internal memos that Walter had padded his resume, but they decided to reveal as little as possible about their internal deliberations. Quote, we do have to worry about public appearances, end quote. Don Harper Mills, a pathologist who was chairman of the Ethics Committee, wrote to his colleagues, end quote. They have to worry about public appearances, folks. The AAFS has a reputation to worry about. Drake finally got someone to side with him in 2003 when a federal judge wrote that Walter's testimony in Drake's trial was, quote, medically speaking, nonsense, end quote. Apparently, while on the stand as an expert witness for the prosecution, Drake's lawyer asked Walter what he'd done in his position at the L.A. County Medical Examiner's Office, as was listed on his resume, to which Walter replied, Good question. What? The Second Circuit Court then claimed that Walter had lied on the stand with the prosecutor's knowledge. Drake eventually pled to lesser charges and was finally released from prison in 2014. As for the case of Deborah Wilson, the Drexel College student and the security guard with the foot fetish who was convicted of her murder, it seems that the DA, who'd bragged about putting more men on death row than anyone before him, was really good at lying, withholding evidence, and twisting facts in order to get whoever he decided he wanted to be guilty of whatever crime he was prosecuting, including evidence supporting Walter's foot fetish theory. Apparently, there wasn't any actual evidence that the victim's shoes were removed from the crime scene. The security guard is still in prison for the murder, but the revelations in his case seem to have cast enough doubt that it's possible for an appeal. Then there were the cases where even if he didn't participate in trials, Walter's reputation as a crack criminologist meant that if he spoke to the media, people tended to believe what he said. Back in 1992, 48 Hours aired an episode about the VDOC Society in which the club contemplated a case during one of their monthly luncheons. A woman had been found dead in the woods, and police thought she'd died by suicide, but her fiancé suspected she'd actually been murdered. Even though the fiancé had been more than a thousand miles away during the time of her death, the VDOC Society declared confidently on 48 Hours, based on what, I don't know, that he had killed her. And Walter accused the fiancé on camera of, quote, playing a high-risk game of catch me if you can, end quote. As a result, the fiancé claimed his ophthalmology business suffered because people generally don't like supporting businesses whose owners have been accused of murder on a very popular news magazine show. 
But why on earth would a man who murdered his fiance and then potentially got away with it by having the death be declared a suicide then be like, yeah, but what if it wasn't a suicide? As for MacGuffin, the man with the unfortunate name who was convicted of murdering his girlfriend based largely on Walter's profile of the killer, in 2019, a lawyer from the Innocence Project got the case re-examined and found a whole bunch of actual evidence, as opposed to the conjecture that got him convicted, exonerating MacGuffin. Evidence that had been kept from MacGuffin's original lawyer, including DNA of an unknown male on the victim's shoes and a time-stamped ATM receipt that put MacGuffin at the ATM in another part of town during the murder and an official and corroborated timeline that made his involvement in the crime impossible. MacGuffin's new lawyer believes that police had decided MacGuffin was guilty and brought in Walter to come up with a story that bolstered that claim. In a deposition, Walter referred to MacGuffin as, quote, whatever his name is, end quote. He helped send this man to prison, separating him from his young daughter and potentially ruining his life, and he couldn't even be bothered to remember his name. Upon more careful examination of his work and a lot of the claims in the book Murder Room, it seems Walter didn't just lie about his credentials and employment history, but also frequently about evidence pointing to the prosecution's suspect. Understandably, his former colleagues have distanced themselves from him, though, frankly, they might have done well to vet him better, or at all, in the first place. In all fairness, though, these types of con men can be so charming, it might never occur to anyone that they're anything other than the genuine article. If you ask me, never trust a guy born in Washington State who lives in Michigan and randomly has an English accent. For his part, Walter has tried to make it look like he broke up with his former friends and colleagues first. Like, you're not dumping me, I'm dumping you. According to the Intelligencer piece, in a deposition in 2022 for which he gave nearly eight hours of testimony, quote, Walter spat venom at his oldest friends and allies. He resigned from the VDOC Society in 2015, saying he no longer trusted certain members. He had quit the board of Parents of Murdered Children because, he said, someone there was embezzling money. Bev Warnock, the current executive director, says, quote, I can tell you that is a false allegation, end quote. Michael Capuzzo was, quote, not the most brilliant chronicler I'd ever met, end quote. Colleagues at the AAFS were, quote, shallow, quite frankly, end quote. Okay, old chap, whatever you say. I suppose Richard Walter would be a laughable figure with his outsized ego, lack of credentials or experience, and peacocking, except for the fact that actual people with actual lives were destroyed because of him. And having been exposed for the fraud that he is, it seems he's ending his life like a hissing cat backed into a corner, refusing to take responsibility for his actions and blaming everyone else around him. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we visit England's most haunted building, the infamous Borley Rectory. 
Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Join us over on Patreon for three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks. And for just seven bucks, you get all the bonus episodes plus the regular episodes ad-free. We've got cranky little children ghosts, treasure hunts, and famous mysteries from the past revealed. Head on over to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained to get more Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by the amazing Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. You can find us on Instagram at SNUpod and join our Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please do help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. If you don't like the show, the name of the podcast is Right Wing Fun Squad. <laughs>